turned out to be something of a misnomer with its massive grounds and multiple villas fitted with gold-plated plumbing crystal chandeliers and flush plush furnishings. King Abdullah's complex looked more like a Four Seasons hotel plopped in the middle of the desert. The king himself, an octogenarian with a jet black mustache and beard, Male vanity seemed to be a common trait among world leaders. Greeted me warmly at the entrance to what appeared to be the main residence. With him was the Saudi ambassador to the United States, Abdel al Jubair, a clean-shaven, U.S.-educated diplomat whose impeccable English, ingratiating manner, P.R. savvy, and deep Washington connections had made him the ideal person for the kingdom's attempts at damage control in the wake of 9-11. The king was in an expansive mood that day and with al Jubair acting as translator, he fondly recalled the 1945 meeting between his father and FDR aboard the USS Quincy emphasized the great value he placed on the US-Saudi alliance and described the satisfaction he had felt at seeing me elected president, he approved of the idea of my upcoming speech in Cairo, insisting that Islam was a religion of peace and noting the work he had personally done to strengthen interfaith dialogues. He assured me, too, that the kingdom would coordinate with my economic advisors to make sure oil prices didn't impede the post-crisis recovery. But when it came to two of my specific requests 
that the kingdom and other members of the Arab League consider a gesture to Israel that might help jumpstart peace talks with Palestinians and that our teams discuss the possible transfer of some Gitmo prisoners to Saudi rehabilitation centers. The king was non-committal, clearly wary of potential controversy. The conversation lightened during the midday banquet the king hosted for our delegation. It was a lavish affair, like something out of a fairy tale. The 50-foot table laden with whole roasted lambs and heaps of saffron rice and all manner of traditional and western delicacies. Of the 60 or so people eating, my scheduling director, Alisa Mastro Monaco, and senior advisor, Valerie Jarrett, were two of the three women present. Alisa seemed cheery enough as she chatted with Saudi officials across the table, although she appeared to have some trouble keeping the headscarf she was wearing from falling into the soup bowl. The king asked about my family, and I described how Michelle and the girls were adjusting to life in the White House. He explained that he had 12 wives himself. News reports put the number closer to 30, along with 40 children and dozens more grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Quote, I hope you don't mind me asking your majesty, I said, but how do you keep up with 12 wives? End quote. Quote, very badly, he said, shaking his head wearily. One of them is always jealous of the others. It's more complicated than Middle East politics. Close quote.
Later, Ben and Dennis came by the villa where I was staying so we could talk about final edits to the Cairo speech. Before settling into work, we noticed a large travel case on the mantelpiece. I unsnapped the latches and lifted the top. On one side, there was a large desert scene on a marble base featuring miniature golf figurines as well as a glass clock powered by changes in temperature. On the other side, set in a velvet case, was a necklace half the length of a bicycle chain encrusted with what appeared to be hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of rubies and diamonds, along with a matching ring and earrings. I looked up at Ben and Dennis. Quote, a little something for the missus, Dennis said. Close quote. He explained that others in the delegation had found cases with expensive watches waiting for them in their rooms. Quote, Apparently nobody told the Saudis about our prohibition on gifts. Close quote. Lifting the heavy jewels I wondered how many times gifts like this had been discreetly left for other leaders during official visits to the kingdom, leaders whose countries didn't have rules against taking gifts, or at least not ones that were enforced. I thought again about the Somali pirates I had ordered killed, Muslims all, and the many young men like them across the nearby borders of Yemen and Iraq and in Egypt, Jordan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, whose earnings in a lifetime would probably never touch the cost of that necklace in my hands. Radical lies. Just one percent of those young men and you had yourself an army of half a million ready to die for eternal glory or maybe just a taste of something better. I set the necklace down and closed the case, quote, all right, I said, let's work, close quote.
the greater Cairo metropolitan area contained more than 16 million people. We didn't see any of them on the following day's drive from the airport. The famously chaotic streets were empty for miles, save for police officers posted everywhere. A testimony to the extraordinary grip Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak held on his country and the fact that an American president was a tempting target for local extremist groups. If Saudi Arabia's tradition-bound monarchy represented one path of modern Arab governance, Egypt's autocratic regime represented the other in the early 1950s, a charismatic and urbane army colonel named Gamal Abdel Nasser had, had orchestrated a military overthrow of the Egyptian monarchy and instituted a secular one-party state. Soon after, he nationalized the Suez Canal, overcoming attempted military interventions by the British and French, which made him a global figure in the fight against colonialism and far and away the most popular leader in the Arab world. Nasser Nasser went on to nationalize other king other key industries initiate domestic land reform and launch huge public works projects all with the goal of eliminating vestiges of both British British rule and Egypt's feudal past overseas he actively promoted a secular vaguely socialist pan Arab nationalism fought a losing war against the Israelis helped from the Palestinian Liberation Organization and the Arab Arab League and became a charter member of the non-aligned movement.
which ostensibly refused to take sides in the Cold War, but drew the suspicion and ire of Washington in part because Nasser was accepting economic and military aid from the Soviets. He also ruthlessly cracked down on dissent and the formation of competing political parties in Egypt, particularly targeting the Muslim Brotherhood, a group that sought to establish an Islamic government through grassroots political mobilization and charitable works, but also included members who occasionally turned to violence. So dominant was Nasser's authoritarian style of governance that even after his death in 1970, 1970, Middle Eastern leaders sought to replicate it, lacking Nasser's sophistication and ability to conduct with ability to connect with the masses though men like Syria's Hafiz al-Assad Iraq's Saddam Hussein and Libya's Muammar Gaddafi would maintain their power largely through corruption, patronage, brutal repression, and a constant, if ineffective, campaign against Israel. After Nasser's successor, Anwar Sadat, was assassinated in 1981, Hosni Mubarak took control using roughly the same formula with one notable difference. Sadat's signing of a peace accord with Israel had made Egypt a U.S. ally, leading successive American administrations to overlook the regime's increasing corruption, shabby human rights record, and occasional anti-Semitism. Flush with aid, not just from the United States, but from the Saudis and other oil-rich Gulf states, Mubarak never bothered to reform his country's stagnant economy, which now left a generation of disaffected young Egyptians unable to find work.
Our motorcade arrived at Cuba Palace, an elaborate mid-19th century structure and one of three presidential palaces in Cairo. And after a greeting ceremony, Mubarak invited me to his office for an hour-long discussion. He was 81 but still broad-shouldered and sturdy with a Roman nose, dark hair combed back from his forehead, and heavy-lidded eyes that gave him the air of a man both accustomed to and slightly weary of his own command. After talking with him about the Egyptian economy and soliciting suggestions on how to reinvigorate the Arab-Israeli peace process, I raised the issue of human rights, suggesting steps he might take to release political prisoners and ease restrictions on the press. Speaking accented but passable English, Mubarak politely deflected my concerns, insisting that his security services targeted only Islamic extremists and that the Egyptian public strongly supported his firm approach. I was left with an impression that would become all too familiar in my dealings with aging autocrats shut away in palaces their every interaction mediated by the hard-faced, obsequious functionaries that surrounded them. They were unable to distinguish between their personal interests and those of their nations. Their actions governed by governed by no broader purpose beyond maintaining the tangled web of patronage and business interests that kept them in power.